So, yeah, Becky's already said, we are going to take a little break from Acts and we're doing a new series. Uh, we are going to go back to Acts. I feel like there's more stuff that God wants us to see about the early church to not just learn about stuff that's in the Bible. I mean, that's good in and of itself, right? But to be inspired by what God did in the Acts, he can do again. The way the church was in the book of Acts is the way the church can be, and I would say should be, maybe not in the dodgy ways, because Ananias and Sapphira, for example, but the way, the, the way that the gospel spread, the way that the Holy Spirit was poured out, the way that they were proclaiming King Jesus and seeing people come into faith, that's what we're supposed to be like. So we are going to go back to the book of Acts. We're not leaving it. Uh, but I just felt like over the summer, where people are going to be away, because summer holidays, um, we're away in a couple of weeks' time, um, we thought, you know what, we'll look at something else. We'll record it and everything so you can catch up on the podcast. But just wanted to look at something different. And it seemed to me that the kingdom of God would be a really good thing to think about. Really good thing. It's pretty crucial to uh, what Jesus taught. And once we're through this morning, we're basically going to be looking at some of the different parables that Jesus taught. Uh, you know, the ones where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like someone throwing a big feast. The kingdom of God is like a man who found treasure in a field, dot, dot, dot. The, the kingdom of God is like a lost sheep. So we're going to look at those parables. Uh, we've lined them up. I am going to go and come and ask some of you if you want to speak. I, you hear enough of me and the other people that are used to speaking. It would be lovely if you would feel able to. If you're up for it, let me know. That saves me thinking of it. But otherwise, I might come knocking on your door. Uh, I really want to hear from others throughout this summer. It'd be really, really good to, to encourage one another in that way. But because we're going to do those parables, I'm not going to dig into them today. Instead, what I want to do is frame the series just by talking a little bit about what the kingdom is. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question. What's the gospel? What is the good news? Life of Jesus. Life of Jesus? We're saved. Yeah, we're saved. Mm-hmm. Sorry? God's yeah. My sins are all forgiven. My sins are all forgiven. Yeah. Any advances? Holy Spirit living in us. Sorry, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit living in us. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Mm. Anyone? Sorry, Paul. Freedom. Freedom, yeah. Eternal life. Eternal life. Anyone heard things like the Roman Road? It probably more popular in America, to be honest. Mm. America likes to distill things down to really simple to understand things, don't they? I think a significant portion of the church, if you were to say, what's the gospel? People would say, we're in sin. Jesus died. We're saved and forgiven. Hallelujah, we're going to heaven after we die that ring a bell? Sort of. sort of. It's a bit thin. You've all been taught too well in the past. Because I would say the gospel includes that. Yes. yes. But it's not just that. And my biggest thing with it is that if that is what the gospel is, the gospel is focused on meeting our needs. 
yeah? And that's often the way we preach it because we live in a, a society that is all about getting my needs met. But seeing as self-centeredness is, I think, at the core of an awful lot of our problems ever since Adam and Eve, maybe the gospel isn't all about our needs being met. Maybe. I think it is much, much bigger. In Mark chapter 1, Mark says this, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, I don't know about your translation, but in my translation, there is a colon there saying that he is about to define what the good news of God that Jesus preached was. And the good news of God that Jesus preached was this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, the good news that Jesus proclaimed is the coming kingdom with himself as king. Itty bitty amen. Oh, yes. That is the gospel. But there is a broader story to tell so that that gospel makes sense. And I'm going to beg your pardon because it is so rich and multifaceted that I am going to miss something. I'm going to. There are themes in the Bible woven from Genesis through to Revelation. There are multiple themes. And if you want to sit here for the next two hours, I could give my best shot. It still wouldn't be enough. And something I forgot to say, there is a booking straight after us today, so we haven't got time. (laughs) But I think the broader story we need to tell is a bit like this. God created everything and it was good. That's the beginning. And he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it, to rule over the earth, to subdue it, he said. Fill Be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth is the call that was given to Adam and Eve. Why? So that Adam and Eve, who were made in his image, would represent him on the earth. That was the purpose of the garden. But we know Genesis 3, not even three chapters into the Bible, they rebelled. They decided to rule and reign for themselves, not for God. They believed the lie of the serpent. They thought, do you know what? We can be like God. We can be like God. And so they rebelled. Scott McKnight, who is a New Testament um, scholar that I quite like, calls them usurpers. They were usurpers of God's kingship. They took the place that God was supposed to have. And the rest of the Bible is kind of God's... The, the account of the different ways God sought to regain the kingship of the earth. You see, when they obeyed Satan, because God had given them true authority, it's almost like they handed the keys of the kingdom over to the enemy. And the earth did become subdued. When the, de- when the devil says to Jesus, if you worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world, it wasn't an empty offer. It genuinely was his to give, because Adam gave him the keys in the garden. Because the Bible says, you become the slave of who you obey. So if authority was given to Adam, you obey what the serpent says, you become that serpent's slave. And it opened up this whole world system that God is redeeming. So the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards, right the way through to Revelation 22, 
is the story of God re-establishing his rule and reign on the earth. Notice, on the earth, not in the heavens. That was never relinquished because we were never given authority there. First, he chooses Noah. He says, right, okay, let's do away with all the rotten humans. Jesus then goes and preaches the gospel to those people that died, we're told in one or two Peter, I can't remember exactly which, but we'll start again. Noah, I choose you, everyone else is going, and we'll start again, and that is how I will re-establish my rule. Except what's the first thing Noah does after the flood recedes? He makes a bit of wine and maybe has a bit too much. Because <laughs> Noah was still a sinner. So then God chooses Abraham, that perfect person who never made any mistakes, right? Uh, Isaac, his son, again, no mistakes there. Joseph, no, Jacob, definitely no mistakes there. I mean, no deception or anything like that with Jacob. His intent was to choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to create Israel so that through Israel, they, Israel would rule over and bless the nations. You can see it in the prophets. It's more than just Israel, my special people. It's you are blessed to be a blessing. Yeah. Trouble is, Israel rejected God as king. The reason we had King Saul and then King David and all the other kings is because Israel went to Samuel and said, look, all the other nations have got a king. We want a king. Tell God to give us a king. And Samuel was offended and pouty because he was like, hmm, I'm, I'm, the, I'm God's spokesman on earth. But God has to say to him, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Israel rejects God as king and asks for human kings, just like the other nations. So he relented. He gave them kings, but with varying levels of severity, each king also usurped God's right to rule over Israel. There were good kings, not perfect kings. There were bad kings, and when there were bad kings, there were bad kings. So God sent prophets to call the kings and the nation to account, and there were periods of revival and restoration. Hallelujah. Didn't last, though. Ezra and Nehemiah, you see a revival as they open up the law. It doesn't last. Each time, that, that trait we inherited from Adam and Eve to usurp, to stand in God's place, to be our own kings and queens, reasserts itself. So finally, God himself enters the scene in Jesus. He is the God who is qualified to rule, taking on human flesh so that we can have a king like the other nations, but perfect, sinless, untainted. And you see, in Jesus, God sets about putting everything we did wrong right. Everything is turning right in him. He reestablishes God's reign. He brings healing, freedom, forgiveness, redemption, and in the biggest twist of all, this conquering king goes to the cross. And he turns what should have been his downfall into the ultimate means of establishing his rule. Because he lays his life down. And he takes on himself everything that stood in the way of God and us. And he takes it to the grave 
and destroys it from the inside out. All of our sin, sickness, rebellion and death are laid on him. They're laid on his shoulders. But he's not overcome. He lays waste to each and every one of them. And he emerges victorious on our behalf. He comes out of the grave three days later, victorious on our behalf. He's exalted to the Father's right hand. He's given all authority on heaven and on earth. And we're now at the point where the king is on the throne of the world. Well, actually, he's on the throne of the universe. Hebrews tells us that he upholds the whole of creation by the word of his power. That is our Jesus. And he calls us to put our trust in his kingship, receiving new life and forgiveness as we do, being caught up into his kingdom through sheer grace and generosity. Not by doing stuff, but just by saying, we trust in you, Jesus. We are caught up into his kingdom We're forgiven, healed, and restored. And then he turns us outward to pick up Adam and Eve's original mission, to rule and reign as his representatives, proclaiming his rule to all who will hear, doing his will, not our own, and then praying and living to see his kingdom extended. And there's going to be a day when it's complete and he returns. Hallelujah. On that day, the promise of, in the book of Revelation will be fulfilled, which says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Mm-hmm. And he will reign for five minutes, forever and ever. That's the gospel. That is the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming. The kingdom is coming. Now, that's very long. Can I express it in a nutshell? I will try, but again, I'm going to miss stuff. The good news is that Jesus is king and he is putting right all that we put wrong at every level. For each and every individual, through to each town, each nation, each continent, all the way up to the heavenly principalities that stood opposed to him, Jesus is reconciling it all. His kingdom has come. His kingdom is coming, and one day it's going to be here in all its fullness. And that includes our personal salvation. It's so much bigger. So much bigger. So what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? First of all, it isn't principally a physical place. When Becky was asking, which kingdoms have you been to? You all mentioned geographical locations. We are in the United Kingdom right, of um, uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is what's on my passport. So we are in a physical domain where, in theory, the King of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland reigns. Now, it's different because it's a constitutional monarchy, etc., so it isn't quite that. Kingdom of Heaven isn't like that for a start. But it isn't a physical place, the Kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wherever God's rule is experienced and expressed. See, that's the heart behind the Lord's Prayer that teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom coming. 
God's kingdom is where God's will is done. And that is our aim. On earth as it is in heaven. Now at the moment, God's kingdom is first and foremost spiritual. It is being established in hearts, minds and communities of people devoted to his reign. That is where the kingdom is. So right now in this room, to the extent that we as a community bow the knee and say, not our will, but yours be done, that is the kingdom. And in that way, in that sense, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is available and active wherever we have faith to see him at work and invite him in. Do you see any problems around you? Myriad. Wherever you see a problem, as subjects of the king, you're being invited to a journey of faith to invite the kingdom in. We see people bow the knee to King Jesus and find life in him. Amen? Amen. We see forgiveness extended to the unworthy because we're all unworthy. We see healing and release from demonic oppression. We see people released from addictions and weaknesses that held them captive. Just recently, someone has emailed in through the church website form asking if we can reach out to someone who is addicted to alcohol and gambling. I have to engage my faith to say, will the kingdom come and meet him? We've got to believe that it will because that is what the king does. That is what the king does. And at times we do also see societal change, like when Wilberforce took on that demonic human slave trade of the 18th century. He grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and through a lifetime's devotion and prayer brought it to its knees, outlawed it through parliament. That is an element where the kingdom comes. But the kingdom is not unopposed. The kingdom is opposed by the current world system. There are still principalities and powers that are blocking and attempting to block the expansion and extension of this kingdom. There's a New Testament professor called George Eldon Ladd. Uh, If you've done any theology, you probably would have come across him. He was a bit of a big deal in the 20th century. And it's so depressing to be able to say that as if it's in the past. But anyway, in the 20th century, mid to late 20th century, uh, George Eldon Ladd was a New Testament professor, uh, very popular within the vineyard movement of churches. And he coined a phrase about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is now and not yet. His kingdom is in our midst, close enough to touch and experience. But there are factors that mean that it isn't fully here yet. One of them is that the world opposes it. The enemy opposes it. And we have to fight those battles sometimes. But God's kingdom is going to win out. When the king returns, his kingdom will come in its fullness. We don't see everyone healed today. I know there are illnesses that we carry in this room and in this community. I can't say for sure that there is going to be healing today, here and now. I can say one day Jesus is going to heal it all. 
one day he will. We remain broken, imperfect and weak. I mean, not me. I've arrived. Uh, I cracked myself up. No, I remain broken, imperfect and weak. God is strengthening me. He has strengthened me. He's bringing me on. But I still have areas of weakness. Some of my areas of weakness are by design because I'm not supposed to be the whole deal. We are a community together. We need each other. But there is going to be a day where we will be like him because we see him as he is. That's what it says in the Bible. We will meet him in the air and we will be changed. There are people in this day and age who will remain captive and refuse to bow the knee, but we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. If I may slightly twist Paul's words. See, one day the kingdom will be a physical place, as obvious as the United Kingdom, and it will be the whole universe joyfully serving and worshipping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King Jesus. There's a big world there. Come on. Think of it. No sin, no sickness, no anxieties, no weaknesses. Christ all in all his rule and reign extended out nothing opposing him that's the good news of the kingdom that's the gospel of the kingdom now as we're going to find through the parables jesus taught about the kingdom but he did it in ways that surprised people actually he did it in ways that offended people especially the spiritual prose the spiritual elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to see some of those surprises in the different parables, so I'm not going to cover those here. But there are some surprises about the kingdom I just wanted to dwell on so that we don't think we've got it all sewn up. The first one that surprised Israel and the Jewish people, the kingdom of God is not about Israel, but it's about the king and his kingdom. Think about it. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is giving his final address before he ascends back to the Father. And he's talking about, you're going to be my witnesses. Wait for the promise of the Father. And the apostles say, so um, Jesus, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can just picture Jesus going, 40, year, 40 days since I rose and I've been teaching about the kingdom and you still don't get it. Tell you what, wait for the spirit. He will lead you and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. See, it's not about Israel. It's actually about the king and his growing reign. Now, if I can draw a parallel, I think we can find the same surprise. The kingdom isn't primarily about us an hour blessing. The kingdom is about seeing Jesus as king and trusting that he is a good king whose growing reign is the best for us. That is the kingdom. And kingdom proclamation, gospel proclamation, isn't us inviting Jesus into our story, 
as we so often make it. It's like, make Jesus your personal Lord and Saviour, because he's going to orbit you. That is not gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation is saying, King Jesus invites you into his story. You are welcomed in to the kingdom to be a subject of the king, to find grace, forgiveness, salvation, freedom, new life. Hallelujah, yes. But we orbit around him. We are subjects of the king. So it's not about Israel or us, but it is about the king and his growing kingdom. The kingdom isn't just words and moral teaching. If you go and ask anyone out there, I can see 30 people on the field over there. I bet if I were to go there and ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They will say, do the right thing in it. Pray, I suppose. Bash a bit of the Bible. But ultimately, it's, it's about doing the right thing. No. That's not what Jesus taught. I mean, he did teach morals, but as he taught morals, what did they say? This word comes with authority, not like the way the Pharisees teach. Because Jesus actually cut across some of the things that was the received wisdom. Eye for an eye, tell you, no. Forgive. Jesus taught with authority. He had power. He saw healings. He saw the demons flee at his command. He said, if I, um, my brain, if I expel demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come among you. He had power. He didn't just have words. And so do you know what? We're supposed to have power and not just words. We have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you and me. We don't go on our own. We go with a kingdom mandate to take the authority and the power that he has given us to represent him in the world. Not us. This is not about Trinity Life's glory. This is not about John's glory or Eddie's glory or Becky's glory. This is the glory of the King of Kings that we want to attract and reflect back to him. Amen? Yes. Kingdom is for the lost, the weak, and the least. Not the religious professionals or the strong ones who boast in their qualifications. Think of Jesus' teaching about the, uh, the Pharisee and the, the tax collector, I think it was, in the synagogue. Pharisee is praying, to be fair, a typical Pharisee prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those others. Lord, I thank you that I I don't break your law. I love your law. What is it, the Pharisee's prayer? Thank you, Lord, that you've not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Genuine Pharisaical prayer. Thank you that I'm not like the others, Lord. Whereas the tax collector gets down on his hands and knees beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus taught the tax collector went away justified. He would eat with the Pharisees, but he made a habit of eating 
with the sinners and the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And when he was challenged about it, what did he say? The sick need the doctor. God's heart is for the least, those who know their need of him. His heart breaks for those. I know his heart breaks for the middle class as well, who don't know their lostness. But that's stony ground. That is harder ground to sow into. Doesn't mean we shouldn't sow into it, but it's harder ground. We've got to know that it's harder ground. But God can do it. But it's for the lost, the weak, and the least. In the kingdom, death comes before glory. We all want glory. I want glory. But death comes before glory. The cross comes before the resurrection. Thankfully, it's not one or the other, but there is a sequence. To a certain extent, if we want to see glory and power, there is a sense in which we have to lay our egos on the line and realize that we've been graced more than our own achievements can give anyway. So let's lay it all down and let the Lord do what he wants to do. And then the last surprise if I say conquering king, what do you imagine? Big. On the tallest horse. Massive broadsword. Full suit of armour. Slashing down his enemies. That isn't our king. Our king conquers through surrender and sacrifice. He lays his life down for the sheep. He takes our sin upon his shoulders and says, here, let me carry that. You can't. He's not a tyrant who dominates and oppresses. So guess how we should carry the kingdom? We carry it in service. We carry it in washing the feet of those whose feet are dirty. I'm rubbish at this. I've got massive lessons to learn here. But you know what? I'm not doing it, actually. Yet not I, but Christ in me. And he will teach me. He will guide me. He will teach you. He will guide you into the way of service that breaks hearts open so that the gospel seed can go deep and bear fruit. And that's what I want as we go through this series. I want us to see and treasure the good news of the king and the kingdom. The kingdom that is here and has been for 2,000 years ever since Jesus lived, died, rose again and ascended to sit on the throne at his father's side. You know, to a certain extent, the kingdom has been around for a long time. But the kingdom is also coming. Yes, one day when Jesus returns, but also today. As we partner with him in extending his rule and reign wherever he has placed us. I've said this before, but I believe God wants us to pursue his rule and reign here in Swindon. Praying and living toward, if I can twist the Lord's Prayer a little bit, in Swindon as it is in heaven. 
That's the aim. That's the goal. And we're going to join all the other churches in doing it. This isn't a Trinity Life thing. This is a church thing. But that's the aim. We want Swindon to be like heaven is. With the king on the throne of every heart and every town. So my prayer as we enter this series, and I'm going to pray it in a minute, is that God will fire our imaginations and make our hearts burn for the kingdom that we hear about every Sunday over the next eight weeks or so. Not just burn for the kingdom, but burn for the kingdom to come here in Swindon. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand? Shall we pray and worship?